Now we come to God's word this morning and our reading as we continue in Second Timothy uh, picks up where we left off at Second uh, Timothy chapter one, verse 15. And then we, we will be reading into chapter two, verse seven. So follow along as we read God's word this morning. Paul writes this. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among who are Vigilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the services he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray before we consider God's word. Our Father and our God, it is the entrance of your word into our hearts and lives that give us light. And so we pray that you would shed upon us your light and your truth. Because we find in the scriptures, your holy word, that which will build us up in our holy faith. And this is what we would pray for. Lord God, remind us again and again that the comfort of your word is the comfort that reminds us who we are and why we are in light of who you are and all that you have done for us in Christ. So, Lord, we would confess you again as our creator and our redeemer and our sanctifier. And we would confess ourselves as Christians who are called to the holy calling of those who would follow Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we consider your word, you would remind us in depth that we are called to be salt of the earth and light to this world, even to this generation in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to begin by thinking about what took place in the Christian church in the fourth century. Uh, there was Constantine, the, the emperor, who declared that Christianity was no longer going to be an illegal religion upon his own conversion in around uh, 333 AD. And then within a fairly short time, a few decades later, uh, the, the, the church itself was declared not just to be non, to be legal, but it was actually adopted by the state as the state religion. When that happened, something dynamic and dramatic happened with the church itself. Uh, the ranks of those who joined the church began to swell and to swell uh, tremendously. But there was a downside to Christianity becoming legal in that sense. There was a downsize to this great influx of all these people into the church. And that downflux was that even as the church grew larger, the godliness of those who identified as Christians grew much less. And so within the church, there was a reaction to this. There was a response to this uh, in the fact that uh, there were those who decided 
that and then blessed by the church for doing so, that they wanted to live the authentically deeper Christian life. And that's where we get the idea of the monastic movement, those men primarily, but also women who chose to be monks. Uh, they chose to live lives of extraordinary sacrifice and service, and they denied themselves uh, most of the worldly conveniences. They lived in poverty with ragged clothing. They often lived as hermits. They would have next to nothing to do with worldly goods. But in the church blessing this approach to the Christian life, the church was, in fact, establishing essentially a two-tiered approach to the Christian life, a two-tiered understanding of salvation and service and Christianity. So the ordinary Christian would be someone who was saved as long as he claimed Jesus as his savior. And he didn't really need to worry about anything like extraordinary service or sacrifice. Uh, such a Christian might miss out on many of the blessings of a deeper commitment to Christ, but in the end, his soul was saved because he had eternal life. And then there, was the, then there were those who pursued this deeper calling the idea that, that the deeper sense of service and sacrifice, uh, the deeper sense of pursuing Christ in the Christian life with great diligence, that there were particularly uh, greater and deeper blessings for those who would pursue holiness, that there was a great even earthly value in holiness. Uh, nothing they found to be more fulfilling or more satisfying than giving everything over to Jesus. Now, this continued to develop in the church, and by the time of the Reformation, that distinction was actually the great distinction between uh, the priest and the people, between the clergy and the laity. You had those who were supposedly the dedicated Christians. They were those who would go into some kind of professional Christian service, and then you'd have everyone else that was born within Christendom. Part of the Reformation attempt to reform the church was the attempt to destroy this wrong two-tiered approach to Christianity. Uh, Luther emphasized the priesthood of all believers. Every true Christian is called to be dedicated fully to Christ. The difference between the clergy and the congregation was never to be one of a difference in dedication to Christ, but rather a difference in terms of a calling, a difference of vocation, difference of career, a difference of one's essential role in life. But dedication to Christ was to be the same for everyone. But the truth is, this two-tiered, this two-layered view of Christianity has never disappeared. Uh, it continued to pop up within Protestantism in a number of different ways. For instance, if you think about Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, uh, it surrounds this thing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be an ordinary Christian always until you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and usually along with that, supposedly the gift of tongues. And then you're going to be a spirit-filled Christian. And a spirit-filled Christian is one who is actually going to be the extraordinary Christian. He's going to be really dedicated uh, in his service to Christ, and, and it's going to demonstrate itself in just a, a, a different kind of living altogether. Then there's also been the thing called the, the, the higher life movement or the deeper life movement, uh, where Christians would be encouraged to move beyond just their salvation experience to the deeper blessings connected to living in perfect union with Christ, walking with Christ constantly, even to the point in that communion with Christ where you could confess a sinless life, this higher life. Uh, and yet you would still allow others their salvation but they didn't have the deep blessings of Jesus. 
Now, in dispensational circles, uh, this showed up in terms of the lordship salvation debate. On, on the one side, you had those who were teaching two kinds of Christianity, carnal Christianity and spirit-filled Christianity. Now, carnal Christians were those who had taken Jesus as Savior, but had not taken the additional step of taking Jesus as Lord. Still saved, but not really living in obedience to Christ. They could be carnal, they could be fleshly, they could be worldly, but still, nonetheless, they're saved, absolutely saved, because they prayed the sinner's prayer, they placed their faith in Jesus. Now, opposing this viewpoint uh, have been men like John MacArthur, uh, who stressed that you 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 cannot split Jesus. Uh, you can't take the Jesus who is the Savior and separate him from the Jesus who is the Lord. You can't have one without the other. The Christ who died upon the cross as the Savior was the Lord of glory. So there's no such thing as a true Christian who refuses to live under the Lordship of Christ. Well, all of this has relevance to Paul's message to Timothy, because clearly Timothy is a shepherd. He's a church leader. He's a full-time minister. He's part of the clergy. And the tendency is to see that what Paul says to Timothy here applies to a special category of Christian. It applies to the uber-Christian, the higher Christian, the Christian who has that deeper calling to, let's say, serve the Lord in full time, or to at least be maybe one who's a lay elder within the church. And therefore, people have a tendency to think that well, what Paul says to Timothy doesn't really apply to the rest of us, those who are ordinary believers. But to think that way is to already be way down the path of this two-tiered perspective this broken two-tiered perspective on Christianity. And that two-tiered approach is not what you're going to hear in this message. And it's not what you will ever hear from the pulpit of this church. Rather, here is the manner in which we have to consider what Paul says to Timothy this morning. That because all Christians are called to the same dedication to Christ, the more public calling of the shepherd is no godlier than the more private calling of those they serve. Therefore, all of the ministry exhortations to shepherds likewise speak to those they serve. Now, when we look at this passage from chapter 1, verse 15, all the way to chapter 2, verse 7, we can see this idea of a common dedication to Christ working itself out in three ways with respect to the concept of ministry. We can look at the experience of ministry as it's reflected in abandonment and affection, and we can see that that likewise is going to apply to the life of a Christian. And then we can see the edification of ministry, the building up of the ministry, requires piety and purpose. And that likewise, likewise applies to the, the very spiritual growth of every believer. And then we can see the efforts of ministry will require a singular focus. But that's likewise true of the entire Christian life. The whole Christian life needs that kind of dedication. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We'll begin then with these ministry experiences that the Apostle Paul had that involved abandonment, but also involved affection. So this is verses 15 through 18. And I want us to think about this, that likewise, this is true of all of us as Christians. 
ministry and the Christian life bring both sorrows and joys. And those sorrows and joys are principally surrounding uh, the people that we know and love and we care for. Now, in verse 15, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the abandonment that he has experienced as a prisoner uh, there in Rome, as someone who has uh, gone through trial and someone who now is actually awaiting what's going to happen in, in some time in the near future, his execution. What, what Paul has to say there is that all those in Asia have turned away from him. And that word turned away that's used here is used in 1 Timothy as the word that describes apostasy, the falling away, the turning away from sound doctrine. And so we might believe that not only have these people fallen away from Paul, but they've also fallen away properly from the gospel itself. Now, who were these men, all who were in Asia? We don't know. Um, two of them are named, but we don't even know anything about these two who are named. And Paul doesn't elaborate. Paul says nothing more because Timothy knows. Timothy is quite aware of what has happened. But when we look at Paul's captivity and his trial before Caesar, uh, some excellent scholars have suggested that Paul requested help, that he sought the testimony of these men in Asia because they are men, perhaps they had public reputations that would have brought their testimony on Paul's behalf and would have helped him. Uh, they would have been able to say, no, Paul is not involved in political affairs. No, Paul is not uh, speaking to slaves and encouraging them to, re to rebel against their masters. No, Paul is not involved in anything that in any way is going to, in any sense, upset uh, the Pax Romana, the peace of the Romans, uh, the, the, the peace and order that the Roman Empire uh, so prided itself and which led to a tremendous amount of social stability for everyone. No, Paul is not some kind of instigator. Paul is not one who instigates riots. He's not someone who, who foments violent protests. He's not any of those things. But that request that Paul made to these men who would know didn't get him any support. None of those men in Asia had come, but rather, as Paul says, in his hour of need, they turned away from him. Which means that the Apostle Paul, who once was with these men face to face, Paul who had known them as friends, as brothers in Christ, he now experienced the fact that they have essentially disowned him. Paul has experienced being abandoned. And you ask, how could Christians, how could Christians who knew Paul face to face ever turn on him in his time of need? And if it's ever happened to you, uh, you might not be able to explain it. You might still be asking why, but you know how awful it is to go through it. Abandonment by people we thought are friends, by people we thought were brothers in Christ. Abandonment is one of the worst things that a Christian can ever experience. It's one of the worst things in life to have people that you trust, people you think are friends, people who seem to be close companions to turn on you and to turn away from you. But let me share with you something about uh, C.S. Lewis that you might not even be aware of, but it actually addresses this, this point and how to respond to it. 
Most of us today know C.S. Lewis as one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. We know that he was one of the greatest um, uh, intellects in defense of the Christian faith. We know he's a wonderful author of you know children's books, the stories, the Chronicles of Narnia. We know he defended the faith through his book, The Problem of Pain, and with miracles and with mere Christianity. Uh, we know he wrote The Great Divorce. Uh, we know all of these kinds of things that the that 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 C.S. Lewis is famous for, and he's highly regarded, uh, even in the secular public today. He's highly regarded, but you know he was a professor first at Oxford. And then in the early 50s, uh, he moved to, to Cambridge. What you probably don't know, that all during his long career at Oxford, the more C.S. Lewis became popular uh, to, the, to the British public, you know, he was, the, he was the voice of comfort. He was the pastor to the people of Great Britain during the war with his uh, BBC talks that he gave, uh, especially the talks that became mere Christianity. Uh, he helped the people of, of England so much spiritually during that awful time. But as his popularity grew within the people of Great Britain, his reputation declined among his colleagues. He was passed over at Oxford Many, many, many times in terms of the kinds of things that a long tenured professor uh, ought to have been able to achieve different different promotions passed over completely. And when he moved to Cambridge, it got even worse. Uh, the higher uh, uh, the Lewis was esteemed within Great Britain, uh, the more he began to be treated uh, worse, uh, even increasingly hated by his professional colleagues. They hated his popularity. They looked down upon his popularity. They hated his Christianity. They hated him because they actually hated Christ. Now, I, I was unaware of this and uh, probably have 50 books about C.S. Lewis in my library. What I didn't know is that only a few of his biographers have actually spoken about this because Lewis never talks about it. He, he doesn't talk about it at all. It's not a story that he tells. You don't read about this from Lewis, how badly he was treated. You only read about those from the biographers who wanted to show what he faced in terms of his life. Now, I want you to note the connection to what the Apostle Paul has done here. Look at how little he says about those who had turned away from him and those who had disowned him. He is only referring to what Timothy already knows. But instead, and quickly, he turns to his other ministry experience, what is so very precious to him, and that is the affection that he experienced from a Christian brother, the affection that demonstrated loyalty and commitment and service by someone who proved to be a true brother in Christ. And that's Paul's testimony about Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus, look at this picture in verse 16 to 18 that Paul paints here. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service 
he rendered at Ephesus. He five significant things that Paul says about Onesiphorus. First, one of contrast. This man was not ashamed of Paul. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. So he didn't turn away from Paul. And then secondly, he came to Rome, didn't know where Paul was, and he sought diligently and earnestly until he found him. And then he stayed with him and he refreshed him and took care of him for as long as he could. And that's why Paul, fourthly, finds him worthy of commendation to Timothy because of the service to him, but also to the service of the church at Ephesus. And then lastly, Paul appreciates him so much that he offers this double prayer, both for Onesiphorus and for his household. So note the example of Paul. He says little about those who let him down, lots about the one who lifted him up. And so should we. This is a great example for Timothy because Timothy is going to have his detractors. But Timothy will also be deeply beloved. There will be those who have the deepest affection for him. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, say little about your detractors. Say much about those who have have done so much in their affection for you. And that's a great example. Great example for all Christian leaders. You know, those who let us down can lead to great, great bitterness. But those who lift us up become a tremendous blessing from God. Brothers and sisters, I've been there. I've been bitter because of those who turned on me and let me down. And I say before God unto you, I have not been, I have not celebrated enough the blessings of those who demonstrated their deep, deep, deep affection for me. But I have known that love. I have known that affection. And I want to live my life in such a way that I am far more going to celebrate the grace of affection that people have shown me far more than the bitterness of things that have embittered me in the past. And I would encourage you likewise, spend time thinking about what God has done for you with your Christian friends far more than what the devil has done in the betrayals that you might have experienced. It is a blessing to know deeply the affections of many. May God bless us to know the blessings of that affection as we live our Christian lives. Now, going on then to the edification of ministry, what what Paul says to, to Timothy here involves this deep sense of piety and this deep sense of purpose. But likewise, these two things are the very necessary things for the spiritual growth of all of us as believers, piety and purpose. So we find the matter of piety spoken to in verse one, where Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is commending to Timothy his relationship with Christ, uh, that the that the grace that he finds is in Christ is to be the entire source of his strength. He is to be devoted to Christ because that's the essential meaning of piety, one's devotion to Christ. 
And and to be devoted to Christ, you must be anchored in to Christ. That is, he needs to be anchored in Christ in such a way that he, he finds his strength in Christ. Because what is happening to the church in this time of the Roman Empire is the, the mounting persecution under Caesar Nero. Uh, apostles are going to die. Many ordinary believers are going to be caught up in this, persecuted, die or at least have many things taken away from them. It's during this persecution that both Paul and Peter die. Uh, this is a time when the faith of Christians uh, was tested in terms of its genuineness. Uh, it was nothing other than what Jesus had predicted and explained to the apostles. This was the time that was coming. It's why Paul says later in chapter 3, verse 12 to Timothy, look, Timothy, all of those, all of you who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The time of persecution is coming. And in talking about persecution, I've heard Christians say to me, I don't know if I could ever handle persecution like that. Now, that's an honest admission. Perhaps it's even a wise admission. But the proper response must be something like this. Is if that is our fear, are we involved in spiritual preparation for the persecution and the dangers that are certain to come? If we want to be with Christ when the times are very, if we want to stand with Christ when the times are very, very hard, then we must be seated with Christ now when the times are very, very easy. There is no substitute for time spent with Christ in the word and in prayer. Now, the silver lining of COVID-19 has been that for most of us, it's given us more time to spend with Christ. Have we? It's our tendency to spend more time with COVID-19 news and statistics than with God's word. It's a tendency during this time to spend more time trying to figure out political conspiracies, you know, to try to figure out if QAnon is the real deal than studying the word of God. It's our tendency to be far more motivated by the political battles of an election year than the constant unchanging purpose of the church, which is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth, which is our very purpose, but we won't find the truth that is our purpose anywhere except the scriptures and the ways we study the scriptures so that we can be those who are ambassadors and communicators of the truth. And that is, that's why it's so important to see that Paul moves quickly from stressing this need for Timothy to be anchored into Christ to being anchored into that very purpose of the calling of Christ, which is what verse 2 is all about. Paul is saying to Timothy, here's what you need to be doing. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, even though people are falling away from the faith, even though people are falling away from me, even though the outcome for me means that I'm going to depart this life because my execution is coming, nevertheless, your calling hasn't changed. Your calling remains the same. You must be faithful to Christ, anchored into him. You must be faithful to that calling 
which is to build up his church through passing on what have entrusted to you to faithful men who are going to be able to do the same thing with others. Timothy, that's your purpose. Stay anchored to that vision. Take the faithful words of the gospel and move it into the lives of others who will also move it into the lives of the others who will be committed to this very purpose. Teach them to be committed to the calling in this way. And that is how, Timothy, as a shepherd, you're going to build up and edify the church. Be anchored to Christ and be anchored to his calling. Now, likewise, this is true for every Christian. Our spiritual lives and the edification of our lives and the building up of our lives depend upon being anchored first to Christ and then being anchored to the calling that we have as Christians in all the ways in which we can describe it, but especially in these epistles to Timothy, the church, the household, the family of God, its purpose is to function as the pillar and the buttress of the truth, the only truth by which men can be saved in the name of Jesus. Now that doesn't change under a pandemic. It doesn't change during an election year. It doesn't change when culture is being canceled. It doesn't change because this is a postmodern, post-Christian, and post-truth world that we live in. Moms are still to be anchored to Christ first and then anchored to their children to entrust the gospel to them. Husbands and fathers, you're still supposed to be anchored to Christ first, then anchored to your family to entrust to them the whole counsel of God. Young adults, you are still uh, responsible first and foremost to be anchored to Christ and then anchored to Christ calling for you to bear witness to the truth in all the places and in all of the positions that God in his providence would place you. And this is how we grow spiritually. This is how we are built up. We find our strength and our energy in Christ, in our communion with him by his word and by prayer. And then out of that strength, we serve. Anchored to Christ, to be anchored to his calling. And then lastly, the Apostle Paul goes into a description of the efforts of ministry and how our efforts of ministry uh, require a singular focus. And how this is also true for the entire Christian life. Now, to make this clear, Paul is going to use three occupations that always require a singular focus. And the idea is that the shepherd of the church and the leaders in the church must imitate these three occupations in this way. And, and the first is that as an example of a soldier. And here the apostle is going to talk about this in two parts. He's going to talk about, first of all, uh, what it is to suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The idea of being a soldier of Christ reflects how Paul has consistently described the Christian life, and then particularly the life of the Christian shepherd, the one who's a teacher, the one who's the elder. It's the Christian life is a war that must be fought. Now, twice in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul uh, wrote to Timothy in this way. He talked about waging the good warfare. He talked about fighting the good fight. But also in, in the letter to the church at Ephesus 
in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the apostle speaks of the Christian life as warfare. That's the whole armor of God passage. And in particular, in verses you know, 10, 11, and 12, as Paul introduces that, he points out that our spiritual warfare isn't against our political opponents. Uh, it isn't against those who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Uh, our, 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 our enemies are not flesh and blood. It's not other human beings. But our enemies ultimately are the principalities and powers of this present darkness, uh, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, that's the real enemy. And the strategy of that real enemy has never changed. It has always been a war mounted against the truth, against God's truth, because there is no truth in the prince of darkness. So Paul calls upon Timothy, be a good soldier, a good soldier who shares in the suffering that comes with fighting this fight. And that suffering is essentially the malice and opposition which targeted Jesus. It's the punishment faced by followers of Christ who will speak up and who will stand up for the truth, for God's truth. Now, the other aspect of soldiering that Paul mentions here involves how good soldiers relate to civilian affairs. The good soldier must keep his purpose as a soldier foremost, up in front, always in mind. He has enlisted to please his commander because the war is full time. Therefore, soldiering must be full time. And with reference to Timothy, that means that Timothy has to have this singular focus. He must guard and guide the church as the household of God to remain true to its purpose and its calling uh, to, be to be that which functions as the pillar and buttress of the truth. This means that all of us as Christians must be so very, very careful of allowing the affairs of the world to dominate our thinking and to dominate our lives. It's not the direction that our citizenship, which is in heaven, which is superior to our citizenship in the world, would ever really lead us. We must guard and guide our lives so that as good soldiers, we will not get wrongly entangled in the affairs of this world. Now, the second example that Paul gives is that of an athlete. The disciplines of the athlete were so well known in the ancient world that Paul doesn't need to say anything more than what he says here. You know, if you're going to compete, you have to compete according to the rules. Athletes, in order to engage the competition properly, they had to follow the rules of the competition. And by this, Paul is basically saying, remember that there are boundary lines, there are guidelines, there are rules with respect to shepherding. There are guidelines and boundaries and rules with respect to the Christian life. And if you're going to do what what uh, the commander has called you to do as a soldier, if you're going to follow what an athlete must do in terms of his competition, then you've got to shepherd according to the proper rules and guidance of shepherding. Stay within those boundaries. Again, be strictly focused on all of those things that are focused on building up the church, the edification of the ministry. The third example that Paul gives is that of a farmer in verse 6. And once again, Paul is pointing to singular focus that is necessary and needed. It is the hardworking farmer who gets the first fruits 
of his labor, not the farmer who's slack, not the farmer who is not diligent in his efforts. It's the hardworking farmer who will see the outcome of his hard work, who will enjoy the fruit of his labor. And so the shepherd must be hardworking if he has any hope of participating in the blessings that Christ gives to those who serve him with a whole heart. So in terms of each of these examples, recognize they really apply to all of us as Christians. They apply to the entire Christian life. We're all called to be soldiers. We're all called to be the disciplines of like an athlete in competition. We are all called to be hardworking in our efforts as Christians, even as a farmer would be. You see, our lives as believers is not a hobby. It isn't an avocation. It's not just part of who we are. It is our whole identity. Being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, is our whole identity. And if it's not, we really have no biblical right to consider ourselves as part of the family of God, as part of his household. All of us, then, are called to the same dedication to Christ as Paul was, as Timothy was, as those who would be shepherds and leaders to the church. The separation between those who were called and set apart as leaders in the church from those who are followers within the church is not a separation according to dedication. It is a distinction according to calling. And that is why all of the ministry exhortations to shepherds likewise speak and apply to those they serve. In our Trinity hymnal, we have a number of hymns that sing about the Christian life. And they never draw the line between clergy and congregation. They never draw the line between shepherds and sheep and leaders and followers, ministers and members, or pastors and people. The 110 hymns in our hymnal that sing of the Christian life, uh, that sing of obedience and spiritual warfare, that sing of service and prayer, of trusting God and perseverance, they all speak to the Christian life for all believers. All Christians will face the loss of friends, but also the deep love of faithful brothers. And all Christians must be anchored to Christ and follow Jesus wherever he leads us. And all Christians must be good soldiers, fighting the good fight and surrendering all of our worldly aspirations in order to serve him with a whole heart. All to Jesus, we will surrender. And all to Jesus, we must freely give. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray in light of everything that Christ has done for us, his work upon the cross, that we would truly see ourselves as soldiers of the cross, that we would stand up, stand up for Jesus. That would be our heart's desire. And we would see the call to dedication, the call to be anchored into Christ, and the call to be anchored into following Jesus is for all of us, Lord. And so we would pray that which you have called us to be, enable us to be so. 
Help us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.